You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Prometheus is a figure from Greek mythology, and his legend says that at one time fire was a tool reserved for the gods. But Prometheus stole fire and gave it to man, allowing people to transcend the limits set by the gods, causing humanity to become more godlike. This myth has excited people for millennia because it captures that spirit of ambition and progress that has so characterized the human race. That desire to transcend limitations and push beyond the bounds of what was thought possible, which is captured by Browning's famous words, man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for? The idea being that we should strive to attain the unattainable. We should reach for heaven even if we can't grasp it. And certainly this ambition has benefited our society. Many of the seemingly insurmountable problems of the past have been overcome by human drive and ingenuity. We don't worry about smallpox and polio and most bacterial infections today because we have vaccines and antibiotics. We have earthquake-proof buildings and structures that can withstand catastrophic winds. We have harnessed electricity and we produce it from a variety of sources. We have, through technology, improved work, transportation, and communication in ways that would have been unthinkable a generation ago. There has been amazing progress. But is progress always good? Most of us know Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, even if we haven't read it. Most of us probably don't know that that book's subtitle is The Modern Prometheus, because in it, a man tries to steal a prerogative that belongs to God alone, the ability to create life, and the results are literally monstrous. Frankenstein warns us that progress is not always good. It needs to be tempered by humility, because we are not as wise as we think we are. Some powers are beyond our capacity to use wisely because we are only the finite creature. We are not the infinite creator. We must not try to play God. The same point was made in the more recent work, Jurassic Park, in which a character says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And in our own time, we've seen what happens when scientists ask, can I rather than should I? with the development of artificial intelligence and nuclear weapons and cloning and designer embryos and gain-of-function research where people work in a lab to make viruses more lethal and transmissible or the use of hormones and surgeries to transition bodies of one sex to simulate the other and all manner of other ethically dubious developments. Friends, not all that is called progress is good. Not everything that can be imagined should be pursued. And the desire to transcend our creatureliness and become like God in power is pure evil. And that's what we're going to see today in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 as we consider the Tower of Babel and its calamitous results. 
Results that are undone only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Today we'll see three points. First, the arrogance of humanity. Second, the fragmentation of humanity. And third, the redemption of humanity. I'll start with our first point, the arrogance of humanity. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. We're going to start by looking at verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, this introductory statement begins the fifth part of the book of Genesis. And as in the previous introductory statements, again, the key word here is the Hebrew term which has been translated generations. And this basically means here is what happened after whomever is named. And so this section is going to tell us what happened after the three sons of Noah. Now, for a minute, we're going to skip chapter 10. We'll come back to it. But this has a massive genealogy uh, that contains many names. But to understand it, I think we need to start in chapter 11 today, where the next big event takes place. So look over now at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. In the beginning, God made a very good world. But that world descended into chaos because the first people rebelled against God. And their descendants became so wicked that God killed all life on earth with a flood. But God spared Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives on the ark. And so humanity after the flood consisted of just eight people. And they exited the ark, and according to chapter 8, they found themselves in the mountains of Ararat, what is today Armenia, east of Turkey. And there the family began to grow, and that was God's intention. After Noah exited the ark, three times in the next 13 verses, God said things like this, chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Noah's family was fruitful and they multiplied greatly. That's what chapter 10 is about. Noah's three sons had many children who had children who had children for generation after generation. Now, chapter 10 seems to indicate that what we're going to read in chapter 11 happened about five generations after the flood. And as chapter 11 begins, what do we see? Yes, humanity has multiplied, but it has also disobeyed God because it has not filled the earth. Although there are, again, hundreds, if not thousands of people on the planet, they have not spread out. They are instead living as one big extended family, one culture, one civilization, sharing one language. And this population was slowly migrating. They started in Armenia, but now several generations on, they have a new home. Look at verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now the ESV reads, from the east. That's grammatically quite possible. But this Hebrew word is used elsewhere in Genesis in a way that often means towards the east. And that agrees with the geographical data we find here. Noah's family started in Armenia, but their descendants moved to Shinar, that area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, in what is today Iraq. And so human civilization moves in a southeastern direction from Armenia to Iraq. You say, well, what's the significance of this? Well, I tell you, in the book of Genesis, moving east is associated with moral degradation. After humanity is expelled from the garden, they exit to the east. 
after Cain kills his brother, he wanders east of Eden. And now that humanity exits the ark, they migrate east to Shinar. And each of these moves is connected to terrible sin in human history. They might say, well, hey, what's Moses got against the east? Or, hey, is it wrong for me to move to Louisiana? Well, probably. But is that what we should take from this? No. I think the issue here is that as Moses is writing Genesis, he's leading the Israelites to the promised land, which sits on the western coast of Asia. And so moving east is moving away from the promised land. Going east symbolizes God's people moving away from where they should be, including morally. And so these people head east. This foreshadows trouble. Well, they arrive in Shinar, and what do we read? They settled there. God told them to spread out, but instead they settle, they consolidate. If this sounds familiar, it should, because this is what Cain did in chapter 4. God told him to wander, instead he settled. So humanity rejects God's word to follow Cain's example. This is another foreshadowing, something bad is about to happen. And just like Cain settled in the east and built a city, so do these people. Look at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These folks are inventive. Yeah, most ancient settlements were built with stone, but there aren't many rocks in Shinar. Uh, but being between two rivers, Shinar had a lot of clay. And so these people took that clay and they made bricks. And they baked them and they bound them together with bitumen, which is asphalt. And now they can build something. Not only are these folks inventive, but they're ambitious. They want to build a great city that will feature a great tower. Now excavations have revealed that Many ancient cities of Shinar often featured massive tower-like structures called ziggurats. Ziggurats were multi-level buildings featuring terraces that stretched above the city. Ziggurats were used for religious purposes. Particularly the Sumerians, the most ancient civilization that we know about in Shinar, they believed that the top of their ziggurats was the dwelling place of the gods. And there have been a few inscriptions found even as late as the Babylonian, uh, the Neo-Babylonian period that speak of ziggurats connecting heaven and earth. And that's how these people thought about this tower they were trying to build. They want to build a tower that will ascend into the heavens so that they might ascend into the very domain of God. Here are people that want to transcend a boundary who want to access those places and prerogatives that are reserved for God alone. They want to be like God. And if that sounds familiar, it should. Because this was the temptation that stumbled Eve. The serpent's lie, you will be like God. A desire to be more than what she was. To reach beyond the limits God put on her. To become ultimate. That's what these folks wanted too. And by so doing, they figured they would make a name for themselves. They would become famous. They would be remembered by their descendants and all future generations. This too should sound somewhat familiar. We've seen people like this before in Genesis. In chapter 6, verse 4, we're told about the men of renown. In Hebrew, literally, the men of the name. Those supernaturally empowered warriors produced by the evil marriages of demons and humans. 
who were remembered in the legends of various cultures. In the same way now, this civilization at Shinar wants to become legendary as people who became more than merely human, like those ancient heroes were. But we see one last motivation from these people. They want to avoid being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They want to stay together. One big, happy human civilization. But this is directly contrary to what God had commanded, that they disperse and fill the planet. And so what we see here is humanity returns to its roots, its corrupt roots. It still reflects the pride that ensnared Eve. It still reflects the disobedience of Cain. It still reflects the evil of the pre-flood world. Shinar shows us a capsule summary of all the sinful tendencies that have bedeviled people for the first 11 chapters of this book. Indeed, as chapter 6, verse 5 says, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This civilization was arrogant. They reached for the heavens, but their reach certainly exceeded their grasp, because this arrogance is absurd folly. If you drive downtown today, you're going to see some really tall buildings, right? Tallest building in Houston is 1,002 feet high. That's pretty tall. But if you stand on top of it, it's not like you're in outer space. You're certainly not in the domain of God, which is outside the material universe altogether. In fact, if you stand on the top, the top of the tallest building in the whole world today, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, you're still only 1 15th of the way to outer space. See, skyscrapers don't really scrape the sky. Now, what about this tower here in chapter 11? Well, the tallest ziggurat that has been discovered is the ziggurat of Ur. And its height is about one-tenth the height of the tallest building in Houston. Now, in the ancient world, that was a big building. But it's not even close to a modern skyscraper. If you want some reference points, you know Methodist Sugarland here? The main building that's about the same size as the tallest ziggurat that's been discovered. It's only two-thirds the height of our sugar factory here in town. This tower is not going to connect to the heavens. Compared to the greatness of God, it doesn't even rate. And we get that sense in verse 5. Uh, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This tower was so insignificant. Moses says it's like God couldn't even see it from his throne up in heaven, so he had to come down to look at it because it was too small. Now here Moses is not making a theological point. We shouldn't read this verse and say, oh, maybe God doesn't know everything or maybe God doesn't see everything. That's not what Moses is doing. Moses is using figurative language here to highlight the absurdity of the arrogance of these people at Shinar who thought they were so impressive but they were totally insignificant in comparison with the God who they were insulting with this project. Here Moses is saying the same thing as Isaiah 40, verse 15. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as dust in the scales. All the power and might and wealth and technology of humanity is like nothing compared to God. We are just specks of dust. So pride is foolish self-deception. Because on our best day, we're not even close to Godhood. But our sinful hearts tell us we are. Oh, we're so smart, right? Our name is the name that should be celebrated across the world. Oh, what God's word says. We don't need to be constrained by those boundaries. We know better, don't we? Our hearts are quick to have that same blasphemous self-assessment 
the Babylonians had in Isaiah 47. They said in their heart, I am and there is no one besides me. They thought they were like God. Many nations have this same attitude today. We're going to talk about that more in a few weeks in Zephaniah 2. But today I want to highlight the fact that many people also believe they're like God today. Especially those with positions of great responsibility, like politicians, doctors, lawyers, scientists, and even sometimes pastors, who often abuse the powers that are entrusted to them, doing what they think is right without humility or regard for God's word. That's what we mean when we talk about playing God, abusing power, imagining yourself unaccountable. Friend, that always ends in terrible outcomes. At the start of this sermon, I mentioned some examples of scientific developments that are ethically dubious. They won't end well. Now, am I saying all scientific development is wrong? All progress is playing God? No. In Genesis 1, God gave humanity dominion over the earth, subject to God's superior dominion. It is proper for us to master the earth and use its resources as good stewards to harness them for energy and for medicine and for technological advancement. All progress is not wrong. But when we use the means of progress for evil motives or evil ends, that's when we're playing God. If we do it to make our name great, or because it's such a thrill to tap into powers nobody's ever tapped into before, or to exalt ourselves, to give us power for power's sake, that's wrong. Or if we develop technologies that attack the order God established at creation, or to attack the value of human life. Friends, when people arrogantly try to establish a new and different order than what God has prescribed, that is sin. Psalm 2 talks about that. The people that want to burst the cords apart, that want to be free from divine constraint. Friends, that is supreme arrogance. But that arrogance is not only a problem for the high and mighty, it's a problem for me and you too. Do we use people to get ahead? Or to get what we want? Do we rationalize it? Oh, they don't really matter, but I do. Do we look down on others and criticize them? Because they don't meet whatever standard we've conjured up in our own mind and want to hold them to? Do we imagine that we are better than others because of our education? Or our job? Or our income? or our popularity, or our intellect, or our beauty, or our abilities, or our spirituality, or our early retirement. Friends, if these things characterize us, we are guilty of the same kind of arrogance. In fact, we are arrogant anytime we sin, because every time we sin, we're saying to God, I know what's better for me than you do. That's pride. That is rejecting the boundaries God has put on us. That usurps God's throne declaring what is good for ourselves. And we saw where that led Eve. And friends, God will hold pride to account. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. God hates pride. But Jesus says in Luke 14.11, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God humbles the proud because God brooks no rival. We heard last week, God will not share his glory with another. And friends, we're not glorious, we're just dust. We need to know our place. We need to humble ourselves before God. 
Because it's only when we're in the place of humility. When we say, well, I'm not really that great. I'm just a guilty sinner, totally dependent on God's grace. That's when we're in a safe place. When we evidence deference before God and a willingness to submit to his word and his will. That's when God will lift us up. 1 Peter 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And today, if you're reveling in arrogance, if you say, hey, I'm, this is great, Ben, but you know, I'm, I'm great, I'm a great person, and my position is secure, and I don't have to worry about any of this, be warned. No one is safe from God. Prophet Obadiah warned, Obadiah 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God will unfailingly humble the proud. And sometimes it happens instantly. And that's what happened at Shinar. And we see that now in our second point, the fragmentation of humanity. All this pride about this tower does not amuse God. And now Moses tells us what God is thinking. Now, each time we've seen God's thoughts in this book up to this point, it was right before a big event, before the creation of man or the creation of woman or the expulsion from Eden or the flood or God making a covenant with life. And now again, we are given God's thoughts. So that tells us something really big is about to happen. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What's God saying? Is God afraid of people? Oh, I better stop them now before they get too tough. Is that the idea? No. Already seen in verse 5, God is not daunted by this mini tower they're building. And the rest of the Bible tells us human power is nothing compared to God. So the issue here is not that God is worried. The issue is that God is good. God sees man's wickedness and man's unity. And God knows if he does not intervene, man's unity will empower man's wickedness to efficiently accomplish increasingly terrible things. We're not told what these things are, but God knows. God knows that this tower is just the start of a new spiral into degradation. Because human nature hasn't changed. It's still totally depraved. And now just a few generations removed from the flood, humanity is back on the brink of collapsing into the same or worse sin than that which caused God to kill everybody. So this has to be stopped because God is good and kind. But how is God going to stop humanity from spiraling into this wickedness? He's going to destroy humanity's unity. Look at verse 7. God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The solution is elegant in its simplicity. If God wants to destroy humanity's unity, well, he just needs to stop us from being able to talk with each other. And so God supernaturally intervenes at Shinar by messing with the language of the builders. He turns one language into many. And so now these people can't talk. That would quickly frustrate their attempts to work together they won't be able to finish this project or start new ones. God jumbles human language, and the result is the fragmentation of humanity. Look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These builders wanted a city. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they wanted to stay together. And in the end, what happens? 
The city is abandoned and unfinished. They get a name, but it's not a good one that will be remembered. The name attached to this is Babel, which means confusion. That's not how any of us want to be remembered for centuries and millennia, right? And instead of consolidating in one place, they are forced to spread out because of this incident. And the extent of this fragmentation is what chapter 10 is about. So turn back now to chapter 10, and let me say a few words about it. Genesis 10 is a massive list. It starts with the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it explains how through these sons, humanity became dozens of distinct people, groups, or nations. That's why this chapter is often called the Table of Nations. This list describes the origins of the world's nations, but it is not a comprehensive list. Not every nation is listed here. For instance, Persia, the great empire uh, that dominates throughout much of the Old Testament, they are not named here. Other countries aren't either. But most of the nations Israel would encounter in the Old Testament are found in this list. So not being a comprehensive list, we should probably understand this as a stylized list, as many biblical genealogies are. That is to say, it is selective in what it includes, and it is organized in a way that communicates a theological truth. If you're looking for another example of this, I'd point you to Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy of Jesus there omits a number of names to make a theological point. Matthew builds the genealogy around the number 14, which was a significant number because that is the numerical value of the name of David. And so that genealogy was built to make a point. Jesus is the heir of David. In the same way here, Moses builds this list around the number 7. He'll present some generations as consisting of seven descendants, or the descendants of a certain person, and then there are seven names listed, although they might appear in different generations. Of course, seven is a famous number in the Bible. It often speaks of completeness. And so the point here might be that all the nations comprehensively emerged from the children of Noah. And to make that point, perhaps Moses has excluded some names. He certainly has excluded the names of the women. Now, as with all the genealogies in Genesis, Moses presents the lineages which are not elect, through which salvation history does not run first. And so verses 2 through 5 catalog the descendants of Japheth. The names here are the names by which many ancient nations were known, which settled in modern Turkey and Europe. Verses 6 through 20 then catalog the descendants of Ham. Uh, the names here are the names by which many ancient nations were known, which settled in Africa and the Middle East. There are two things to particularly note in this list of Ham's descendants. We find the first in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Nimrod was a powerful figure. He was basically the first militaristic king. He became legendary because of his power. Like many ancient militaristic kings, Nimrod was associated with hunting animals. But what's told for us here is that he also hunted territory. This kingdom started in Shinar. He started many famous cities, including Babel. 
Now, this word Babel in Hebrew is the same word that will later be used to describe the great city of Babylon through the Old Testament. In English, they're different. In Hebrew, they're not. That mighty, arrogant place that oppressed many cultures and that ultimately enslaved and deported the Israelites. Babylon is the Babel we read about earlier. And Nimrod was behind Babel. Other great cities also came from Nimrod. Nimrod was a significant figure in world history. He was a descendant of Ham. The second noteworthy feature of Ham's genealogy is his focus on the Canaanites, the historic enemies of Israel. You'll see a chunk of text there that talks about them. They were cursed by Noah in chapter 9, and they descended into all manner of evil. The record of the Canaanites stands out in this list because it's the one place here where we don't see any emphasis on the number 7. And so perhaps Moses here is drawing attention to the chaos and disorder of Canaanite society by presenting their names in a way contrary to the order of the rest of the list. Finally, in verses 21 to 31, we find the elect lineage through which God will advance salvation history, the lineage of Shem. And we'll talk about them more in a minute. But the last verse of chapter 10 sums up this list. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So God's purpose was fulfilled. People spread out. Not because they obeyed God's word, but as a severe judgment upon humanity's arrogance. God ended humanity's unity, and he forced people to wander from Babel and find new homes. Moreover, there's another aspect of this judgment we don't learn about until later in the Bible. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. See, God's plan was ultimately he was going to choose one nation on earth, which would be his nation, and he would work through them. And of course, God chose Jacob or Israel, which at the time of Babel did not yet exist. But what about all the other countries? Well, Deuteronomy 32 says God told them where they were going to live. He demarcated their boundaries of their existence. And we're told he assigned them to the sons of God. We've seen this term before in chapter 6, where it described angels who sinfully meddled in human society. So at Babel, not only did God fragment the nations, he also turned the nations over to the demons. You find the same idea later in the Bible. Daniel 10, God speaks about an evil angel who stands behind the Persian Empire. And other passages like Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and many others associate supernatural beings with various nations. Even in the New Testament, Apostle Paul speaks about principalities and powers. The ESV translates these terms rulers and authorities. The Greek words that are translated here were often used to denote the rulers of particular geographical areas. So Paul also might be saying angels had authority over various nations. And when Paul talks about principalities and the powers in the New Testament, he's always describing fallen angels. Colossians 2.13, he says, At the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. So it seems that God further judged the nations at Babel by turning them over to demons. 
And this, then, is the source of all the false religions in our world, these demons. That's why Deuteronomy 32, same chapter that brings this idea up, continues saying, they sacrifice to demons that were no gods. Because demons impersonate gods in our world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. The truth that demonic power stands behind the nations also teaches us about the flow of history and the struggle for power that nations are involved in. Demons apparently seek to aggregate worldly power and occasionally war with each other. Again, if you need a reference, Daniel 10 talks about the flow of world history by describing three battles involving angels against each other. So this second point teaches us a few things. First, God sometimes judges sin by giving people over to more sin and evil. That's Romans 1, right? Three times we read God gave them over because people would not repent of their sin. That's a judgment because sin kills. So to be turned over to sin is to face destruction in this life and the next. So God turning the nations over to the demons is severe judgment because the demons will harm them in this world and will lead them astray. And if they don't repent, they will face condemnation forever. More than that, the demons stand behind what we know as the world system of various levers of culture that are used to propagate Satan's lies. Christians often think about the world system as a source of evil, and it is. But beyond that, it is also a judgment upon us. It is a testimony to this truth. God has given the nations over to the demons to punish human evil by allowing the destructiveness of sin to destroy the unrepentant. Friend, make no mistake, there is a massive invisible conflict taking place. Second, we need to resist the lie that every religion is the same. Every religion apart from biblical Christianity is false and demonic in origin. Those other religions are unable to save and do not lead to God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why Acts 4, 12 says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone can bring us to the Father. Last, I want you to, to notice here that the division of humanity into many people groups and all of the tragedies that have come from that, all the wars, all the ethnic strife, all the horrors of history is ultimately a judgment upon this sin at Babel. God has judged humanity by turning us over to our own evil inclinations and all the disaster that has come from that. Friend, it is so easy to believe that our sin is insignificant, but the Bible tells us sin kills. James 1.15 says, sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. And if we look at all the horrors that have unfolded throughout history, that shows us how seriously God hates sin. Because if all that has taken place is the just penalty for the sin at Babel, God turning us over to all of our evil inclinations and to the reign of the demons, if that's what Babel deserved, then how much does God hate pride? How offended is God by societies that revel in arrogant evil? And if the consequence for the arrogance at Babel was all the horrors of history, basically, then how much more severe will God's judgment be upon our society that has reveled 
in so much more arrogance and sin than simply building a tower? How much more severe will God's judgment be at the end of history after all the wickedness that has been done since Babel? Friend, don't believe the lie that sin is no big deal. Sin is massively problematic in God's sight and he will furiously avenge it. Friend, is there sin in our lives? Consider this right now that you have been indulging and rationalizing. That's true, friends. We need to repent because God is not mocked because his vengeance is coming because sin makes him angrier than we like to admit. I know many of us can sign doctrinal statements saying we believe the wrath of God is coming. Sometimes we have to look at a passage like this and say, oh, this isn't just like God's saying this. God is furiously angry about sin. But we come now to our final point, which is the redemption of humanity. God has severely judged mankind. Things look hopeless, but because God is real, alive, and all-powerful, friends, there's always hope. And we see that now as God acts in a way that shows he's going to bless all of these nations that he's just condemned. Look at verse 10 of chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. This starts the brief sixth section of Genesis, which focuses on Noah's son Shem and his descendants. Chapter 10 listed all the names of the first few generations of Shem's descendants. This list is different. This list traces only one line of descent from Shem. Beginning with Shem, it gives all the fathers and sons in one line through the children of Shem's descendant, Terah. Now, this list is interesting for a few reasons. First, it contains some important names. In verse 16, you'll see the name Aber. That's the source of the word Hebrew. In verse 18, you find the name Peleg. Chapter 10 says Peleg. In his days, the earth was divided. That tells us when Babel happened. Second, this list is interesting because it charts a massive decrease in human lifespan. Chapter 5, we regularly saw people's lives approaching a thousand years. But all the men here die much younger than that. And this phenomenon accelerates as the generations go by. And many theories have tried to explain this. Perhaps the flood changed Earth's climate and was more inhospitable for people. Perhaps this was a result of the reduction of the gene pool to one family because inbreeding often harms the descendants that come from that. Perhaps this was just a result of sin being transmitted over and over for generation after generation, reducing lifespans. Whatever the answer is, we cannot know. But lives got much shorter after the flood. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this whole list, but I I do want you to see where this genealogy ends. Look at verse 24 of chapter 11. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now the children of Terah come into focus, and at this point the whole book of Genesis changes. Up until this moment, we've been dealing with big global issues. Creation, fall, flood, human civilization before and after the flood. The fragmentation of humanity into nations. But now we're going to focus just on one family for the rest of this book. The father of this family is Terah. Terah was an idolater. Joshua 24 verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. 
Chapter 11, verse 28, tells us Terah and his family lived in a city called Ur. It wasn't far from Babel. And there Terah fathered sons. Two of them we know very little about. We know almost nothing about Nahor and only a little bit more about Haran. Chapter 11, verse 28 says Haran died in Ur. But Haran's son was Lot, and we'll read about him a fair amount in the, in the upcoming chapters. We also see here Terah's other son, Abram. In chapter 17, God will rename him Abraham. And Abraham is the man God is going to use to work out his good purposes for this wicked world. Because when we return to Genesis next year, God willing, we're going to see these words spoken to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God calls Abraham out of idolatry unto himself. And through Abraham, God will begin to reverse his judgment on the nations. The nations have been fragmented and turned over to demons. Now God is going to form a new nation through Abraham. That's not under the demons. That's under God himself. And God tells Abraham, you don't need to be like those people at Babel and try to make a name for yourself. He says, I will make your name great. So God chooses Abraham. And God works through Abraham. But not for Abraham's benefit alone. Because God says he's going to use Abraham and his descendants to bless all the families of the earth. See, the condemnation at Babel is not God's last word for the nations. God means to graciously reverse Babel. And he's going to do it through Abraham. And Abraham's son Isaac. And Isaac's son Jacob, whom God renames Israel. And ultimately, this blessing will come to its fulfillment in their descendant Jesus, whom the first verse of the New Testament calls the son of Abraham. Because Jesus is the one who brings God's blessing of salvation to all the nations of the earth. Salvation is not an ethnic thing. Romans 9.6 says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Not every Israelite really belongs to God. Not every Jew really is a son of Abraham. Oh, genetically they might be, but genetics don't matter. What matters is spiritual connection to God. And that comes through God's grace. It's received by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Galatians 3.7 says, Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Whoever believes in Jesus, whether they are the biological descendant of Abraham or not, they're the true people of God. Those who believe in Jesus are the true descendants of Abraham, the father of faith. How? Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. At the right time, God the Son took on humanity. He was born of a virgin. He did not inherit the sin and guilt of Adam. He was born as a Jew under the law. He lived a perfect, sinless life, the life that we have failed to live. And he died. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
Jesus bore the curse, the very wrath of God that we should have borne for our sin. He took that on himself and he died for our sins. And then Jesus rose from the dead, a victor over sin and death and Satan and the demonic realm. Because Jesus is the long-promised offspring of Eve who will smash the serpent's head. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus offers hope and redemption to people from every background. We see that in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. At Pentecost, Jerusalem was filled with people from every place. And they all spoke different languages. But when God poured out his spirit on the apostles, it caused such a loud noise that people came from all across Jerusalem and they came out to see what the noise was about. And here came the apostles and they were speaking about Jesus. And we read this in Acts 2 verse 8. And they, the crowd, were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. At Babel, God confused language. At Pentecost, God supernaturally empowered the apostles to speak all languages, to point all people to Jesus. Because it is the purpose of God in Jesus to bring people from every nation into one new body. That's what God intends. To save a people for his own possession, drawn from every place and every people group. Descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth alike, who are all saved by the blood of the Lamb. Revelations 5 praises God, praises Jesus because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's God's plan. One new humanity drawn from every nation on earth who have in common only our participation in Jesus. Now Satan has tried to hinder this through ethnic division and hatred to keep people divided. That's an evil strategy and tragically it's worked. More recently, Satan has tried a different strategy. If God intends one international body under the reign of Jesus, Satan promotes the idea of humanistic triumphalism through globalism. A new international order on the basis of international law and international economics and international politics. An idea the book of Revelation also calls Babylon. It's a new Babel, a new attempt to create one civilization, one culture, filled with terrible ambition and opposition to God. This is a false attempt to simulate what God is doing in Christ. And in the end, that Babylon too will be judged. Because in the end, Jesus will return and crush the serpent. In the end, God's will will stand. In the end, the new humanity that has been formed in Jesus alone will occupy a new world. And God's people will dwell in God's presence in unending bliss in the new creation. Now what should we take from this last point? First, understand there is hope in the gospel of Jesus alone. There is hope for our ruined and condemned world. Yes, God's wrath is furious. God's mercy is greater. There is hope for each of us, no matter our background, no matter what we've done in this life. If we turn from our life of sin and cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, because he is God and man, because he has died and risen, we will be saved. Friend, turn to Jesus and live because the things of this world are passing away. 
because Jesus is coming back, because a worse judgment than Babel will fall on this world. In Jesus alone is security, peace, forgiveness, and joy. But today, if you know Jesus, I want to appeal to you, do not be deceived by Satan's trap of racism. Friends, humanity really is one large family, and it is foolishness to look down on our distant cousins because of the color of their skin or whoever their ancestors were. Just like it's folly for us to puff ourselves up with empty pride over our ancestors. Because in the end, we are all the common descendants of the same sinners, Adam, Eve, and Noah. And if Jesus himself intends to bring people from every background together in Christ, on what basis do you dare look down on someone because of their ancestry? Do you know better than Jesus? Friend, if you're a believer, you better get used to being around people from different backgrounds because you're going to be with them forever. So love other people even if they look different than you, especially if they look different than you. And resist urges by those who want to manipulate you to hatred or the sin of partiality on the basis of ethnicity because that persuasion is not from him who calls you. That is from Satan. Second, don't be deceived by Satan's false promise of humanistic triumph. Over and over again in the last century, we've been told that the solution to every global problem is human endeavor and cooperation. Technology and progress and internationalism will create a utopia on earth. Friend, don't believe it. All that stuff is just another babble. It's going to end in frustration and humiliation. Because we can't solve our own problems. Because our problem is sin. And we can't solve sin by turning to sinners. We've got to turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ. In the end, He is the one who's going to bless the nations. In the end, He is the one who's going to set all things right. Because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this world will be His forever and ever. So to conclude, let us today humble ourselves before Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus, humble yourself before him. Cast yourself on his mercy and you will find a rich and glorious salvation beyond anything you can imagine. If you have trusted Jesus, humble yourself before him because he is Lord, not you and not me. And friends, let us not despair. Yes, our world is ruined. Yes, our world has been judged. But Jesus is coming back. And he says in Revelation 21 verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new.